online and on your mobile. From the UK to the world, this is Diverse FM. Hello, the Brexit is one of the biggest news stories for people in the UK and probably some people in the European Union um, since 2016. I listened to the coverage of Brexit referendum back in 2016 on BBC Radio London when I was studying um, my bachelor degree in back in China. Uh, I listened to the coverage, listened to the radio show, listened to how people react to the um, to the final idea, the final outcome of the referendum that the UK will leave the EU a few years later. And then follow up the story from 2016 until 2020, really, um, about all this kind of bits and bobs around it and politicians that are talking about how to do it. And... Um, you know, companies and businesses are complaining how difficult it is going to be for them if there is a Brexit in the future or there is a deal, there's no deal. I think it's kind of like a drama for me. It might not be as intense as, um, for example, EastEnders, but it's it's kind of the big drama for me personally, learning about all the politics in the UK and following the journey of people deciding their future um, by a vote. So I think it's time for us to have a chat about um, Brexit because the UK has finished the deal with the EU and then finally finished, I think kind of finished the whole legal process of leaving the European Union. So let's talk about it. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Robin and Friends, a weekly podcast featuring stories, ideas and opinions from around the world. I'm Robin of Robin and Friends. You're always welcome to getting in touch um, and tell me what you think of Brexit. If you want to still tell me we should have a second referendum about Brexit then fine, let me know. You can find us on social media at DiversFM on there on Twitter and at DiversFM on Weibo. Email me divers.fm at foxmail.com. You can find us on social media on the website, of, of course, divers.fm.weebly, which is w-e-e-b-l-y.com. Robbie and a friend. Right, this week I'm joined by my friend Caitlin Powell again. Hello, Caitlin. Hi, Robin. How are you? Not too bad, thank you. How are you? Very well, thank you. So excited and grateful to be back here. Oh, well, it's <laughs> lovely for me to have you back on the podcast. I mean, you always have something interesting to say, and I'm always eager to listen to what you think. So this is a topic that really, I guess, kind of be, could be struggling for some, but could be entertaining for most for a long time since 2016, talking about referendum voting, reactions and a negotiation and the deal. Um, now that the deal is down, what do you think about that? Do you think it's, it's a relief? Do you think it's a new start? Do you think it's more like, better let's just get on with it? <laughs> In some ways, I'm relieved. I mean, it just went, I mean, we were, it spent so long trying to sort out this deal. Yeah. Um, and, I, and part of me is just relieved that we have a deal because the idea of not having one was worse. Um, so I was relieved at that. But at the same time, it's one of those things that for the last few years, I have been sitting there going, well, if we're, we're leaving, people voted to leave. Um, and in that case, like the idea was to move on to sort of like if that's what's happened, we have to like sort of start um, that aspect of our life um, and all the sort of teething issues that we're going to face in the process. Yeah, yeah, I think that's quite tricky. So when we have listened to all the news about how difficult it is for Boris Johnson and the EU in general to have a, a deal, proper deal, and then everyone's happy with it. That's kind of a really painful journey, I would say, especially when COVID thing kicked in in 2020, um, makes everything harder. Because um, I was working in uh, the radio station on Christmas Eve when the news came that, you know, they got the deals uh, signed and 
it's gonna be passed on to to be approved by the House of Commons. I feel like is it that really a deal that have been carefully considered? Like it's, to me, it sounds like they push the whole process. Just want to finish it before the end of the year. What do you think? I mean, I don't think we. I I think I was of two minds. I was stressed about it in the way that sort of like the constant sort of commentary and news on the fact that we didn't have a deal is very stressful to hear. Um, and we were all desperate just for it to be sort of finished, um, and we wanted it to be right. We didn't want anything to be missed out. Um, but at the same time, I I sort of often came to the decision that like we were going to have a deal. I mean, I know that they said that there was a chance there couldn't be no deal, but I felt like that was always kind of lower <laughs> expectations with a hope of sort of actually fulfilling the best option, which in our case was a deal. Um, so I always kind of had hope that that would be the case. That sort of obviously they were saying there's no that there's a chance that there won't be a deal. Um, and then it was sort of that relief when it did come through. But I sort of I hoped we'd spent so much time in Brussels to not come out with a deal. I think would have been really, really, really hard. <laughs> it is. Um, given how much time we spent out there. Yeah, and I've heard lots of concerns from businesses because now um, working in the radio station, I listen to all lots of interviews done by um, my colleagues and know how struggling businesses are when there was kind of a bit uncertainty about how they could do the trade with uh, countries and people in the EU in the future. And now there ha- there is a deal, slightly. Uh, less uncertain because some of the things have been settled down. But for the fishing rights, for the border between the um, Great Britain and Northern Ireland, that's still an issue like, kind of left in there. And now people are talking about Gibraltar, saying it wasn't actually in- included in the original deal and then have to be a kind of a second deal um, to settle down the things with Gibraltar. I think it's still complicated than many people think, I guess. I guess probably when many people are voting for the um, referendum back in 2016, they're just thinking about whether we should stay or leave, which is better for me. But after that vote, actually things have been much more complicated than simply saying we're going to leave the EU. Absolutely. And I think the thing that it's sort of, it's very easy to think of the EU and Europe as a whole, including the UK in terms of the continent, as one kind of big body um, and almost like a sort of living thing. It's there. So there's this impression that sort of like it's sort of infighting and it's sort of very familial. But like at the end of the day, the European Union is a very bureaucratic institution in the sense that it relies on lots of different sort of like councils and organisations within it who do very many different things. And to leave, you have to extricate yourself, well, the country in this case, from every single one of those things. But we've also got to take into account that we're still in the continent. Hmm. So the the level of sort of like extrication it was going to take a long time because that means we sort of removed every like funding for example that's just one aspect of the EU um, and I was reading the other day how um, BBC Wales had done a whole thing about how the creative industry is going to be affected by um, the loss of the EU as such because that sort of removes a whole load of funding um, but if you think about all the funds that we're having to pull out there and how we're going to recover from that, because obviously we don't want to lose the creative industry, so we've got to work out how we're going to find the money to do that. And that's just one small sort of like case study of how we've got to do that. And as you know, Robin, my dad works in Belgium, has done for the last two years, and he's having to go through the process of sorting out residency again, having done the work permit the first time round. Because obviously, now that we've left the EU, it's a completely different kind of bureaucratic system. 
in order to sort of just be allowed to do the job that he's done for two years. I know there's kind of an EU settlement scheme for uh, people from the EU working in the UK, but I'm not familiar with people from the UK working in the EU. That's really crazy. And you mentioned a really good point there, uh, talking about the art industry. Because funny, if I, I worked in Radio Cardiff myself for some time, still working with them remotely, and Radio Cardiff received a large sum of money from the EU at a very early stage when it was started back in 2007. And... I, I usually, I usually when we're having a chat about um, the money coming from the EU, we used to say if there's not that much money coming from um, the EU's, uh, I guess it's one of the councils or one of organizations, at that time, the station might just not be there in 2020. See what happens now. A few years later, the money just gone. That's what's happened now. So I think that's really the case. And also I heard the news saying um, the UK government promising there will be the same amount of money to Wales, especially to Wales industries, um, as the money coming from the EU. But will that happen, especially with the COVID thing? And every, everyone, every industry is asking for money. I, I doubt about that, to be honest. Exactly. And I think sort of when you when you consider that sort of the, the article I was reading, it was about um, No Fit State, which is a kind of performance sort of company. Uh, and they were being funded by Creative Europe which is the EU's fund that invests in arts and cultural projects, and the fund had spent more than 12.4 million euros wow. in Wales over the past seven years on media and cultural projects. And that that's no sort of like small amount of money, and our system is not yet set up as an independent system that we can kind of fill that hole easily um, now that we've left the EU. Um, but this happens across all industries, and like I focus on the creative thing just because that's the article I was reading the other day on the BBC about it but um, it happens across I think I was like looking at like a perfume the other day online that is sort of the company the home company is based in France and that couldn't um, be sent over and that thanks to the EU uh, no longer being <laughs> connected to the UK and then yeah. of course we've got I don't know if you read it that Aberdeen is now the port that will receive all of the alcohol um, coming from I think it's Holland um, and uh, I was uh, we were talking about it the other day, partially because my uh, my partner Marcus he works in the alcohol industry, and we and we met in Scotland when I was at Edinburgh Uni, and we were laughing about the fact that given there's so much snow going on in the country at the moment, is it really a good idea to <laughs> leave leave the alcohol up in Scotland? Um, <laughs> but it's sort of we we are adapting, we are we're trying to find ways, and Aberdeen is sort of probably going to thrive from that portal. Uh, well, to be honest, I don't have like kind of personal stance on whether should UK should leave or remain because basically I'm not a British citizen and I have very little knowledge of the links between the EU and the UK. But I have been reading news and I found out, I think the Brexit, especially the, the finish of the whole Brexit the legal process, kind of fits in um, to the independence feeling. Like I heard news from... Scotland, uh, especially some politicians in Scotland are, are saying this, uh, the, 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 the country will be joining the EU sometime in the future. And there are more people talking about Welsh independence as well on social media. I'll be speaking to one of my friend Barney later in another episode, talking about why he supports the um, Welsh independence. But that's kind of the situation, I guess, kind of put into the, I would say, encourage the change of people's mind or encourage the idea that it already has. Oh no, absolutely. I, I actually wrote about it on my blog um, when we were um, at, at uni in Cardiff because obviously I was in Scotland and then I went to Wales and both countries have a really well-established um, sense of independence 
um, and a desire to be independent. And um, what the sort of the sort of removal from the EU Brexit itself has done is people who miss that sense of sort of like community and don't want to be an independent state have um, kind of been turned off the idea of being Great Britain without the EU and mm. Wales in particular. Um, they saw a massive rise in independence interest after um, Brexit was confirmed. So it was sort of among a series of respondents on a YouGov poll in 2019, 24% of respondents said they would vote for Welsh independence tomorrow. And yet, in a scenario where the UK had left the EU but Wales could remain a member, the number of yes to independence, 33%. So that's like, that's almost a sort of 10% increase of interest. So that's almost a third of the respondents were saying yes when it meant that they had the, uh, the capacity to stay in the EU uh, and if they could choose that over independent and, and that and independence over being in Great Britain. It shows how fractured it is. Um, mm. And I, I, I mean, I always, in Scotland and in Wales, I often took the stance of it is not for me to say what's right. I grew up in England. I'm three quarters English. <laughs> it's, um, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm, I may have Scottish family, but like, I am, I've, I've grown up and known England the most. And I, it's not for me to say whether they should or shouldn't be independent. But I completely sympathize with that yearning of if there is a way to stay um, for that sense of community, I can I can understand it for countries like Scotland and Wales who have had very difficult pasts with being in the union in Great Britain. Another thing that I want to ask is about how Brexit affects your life, because the experts are saying the price of daily life um, products, especially food, will be rising um, between by between three and five percent after Brexit because of all this kind of um, border check. Um, but to you, have you ever noticed something happening so far? Nine days into the new year. That's why we're recording this episode. <laughs> um, and nothing has changed for me so far. But I'm, I mean, I'm very fortunate that I live in a kind of rural area where we do a lot of like local grocery shopping and everything. So I buy locally anyway a lot of the time. So I haven't noticed it as much. I think like looking at a perfume online might have been my first like <laughs> first like sign of it like properly affecting me. And I mean, I suppose the other thing is my dad is obviously trying to sort out residency, so he's not um, back in Belgium yet. And to think that this time last year, I was freely traveling to Belgium. I was doing research on that trip for my documentary that I did for our dissertations over the summer. And I like I think now that if I were doing that, I would be able to do it as a visitor. But if you want to work out there, you've got to sort out a whole new load of paperwork. Um, that's so much harder than sort of the freedom of movement that we did have. But it's, um, I mean, the other thing that I noticed, and I don't know whether you spotted it, there's an article in the Financial Times, and obviously we're living in a time of COVID, um, and we're seeing loads of vaccines coming out. And actually, um, I was sent this article the other day that was looking at how, um, how the vaccine in the UK, we've managed to vaccinate like one million people as of Tuesday this week, whereas Germany, Spain, and France had vaccinated... 367,000, 139,000, and 5,000 people respectively. Now, of course, that doesn't take into account size and population size of these countries. But one of the things that we can sort of like celebrate in some ways is that there are parts of our country still running. Um, and however I felt about the loss of sort of Brexit, which came with Brexit, like at the end of the day, we've done it. And all I can hope for is that we keep doing stuff like rolling out the jabs. It's not ideal. There are many issues with it, but we are doing it. And we're, we're, st we're still running as a country. We didn't chime on one minute past midnight into 2021 and the country sort of disperse into hell. So um, 
<laughs> I've, uh, it's, we've, we, we, ha we are seeing changes, and we will see so many more. I am yeah. sure we will see so many more. And from the very selfish perspective of people who sort of want to work abroad, it's going to be harder. But um, we're okay at the moment. I yeah. mean, probably the lockdown helps because <laughs> you can't go anywhere. You can't be too affected when you're yeah, it's not going to have sudden changes into it because some people can't travel freely um, anyway because of COVID restrictions. It doesn't feel like suddenly people can't uh, travel to the um, the continent as they wish. No, I think vac vaccine you mentioned is really a good uh, kind of like cooperation between countries. Really, uh, so for for the first vaccine approved in the UK, it was not coming from the UK, so um, mm. it's kind of a lots of cooperation, lots of transport involved and it works out not too bad I would say there are bits and bots around it but it's not too bad really now we have three different vaccines approved in the UK I'm still amazed by how quick um, I mean in terms of reacting to the to the changes and proving the vaccine um, in the UK uh, back home in China you know I'm from China in China they got uh, I think they got only one type of vaccine approved kind of partially approved um, they're rolling out quickly, but it's, it's slightly different because they only have one type of vaccine at the moment. Um, so yeah, so I think that's one thing I'm happy about. Uh, uh, as long as all the things are running as usual, the government is running as usual, the, and the, all this kind of the, the big thing, the politics are running as usual, then I guess we've got time to sort out the Brexit and all this impact afterwards. Um, it's, 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 it's generally fascinating for me to know how you think about it and how British people think about it, because we do talk about it in the newsroom when we're working. Some of my colleagues are really <laughs> happy about it. Some of them are really terribly unhappy about <laughs> it. They just feel like, you know, it's kind of the traitor of the, of the British people to have a vote and leave the EU. But generally speaking, after all these kind of hustles and the big fast, do you think it is going to be a new chapter, like a new beginning in terms of relationship between the UK and the EU? Or it's more like continue, but in slightly different ways? I think it will be kind of a mix of both. It's a new chapter in the sense that sort of like in many worlds and industries, it will be a new chapter because their lives will be so massively different. You take the fishing industry, industry for example, how they function will be completely different to how they functioned before in the sense that they're under a different sort of governing body. Um, but at the same time, we will kind of continue as normal. You consider that there are countries like Norway, for example, I believe is not a member of the EU, um, but is so intrinsically European. Um, Eurovision, I mean, Robin, we both have a friend who loves Eurovision, um, and quite rightly so. Um, and uh, we will continue in that sense. We're still part of the continent. Mm. Um, we're still we're still present as such in that sense, and I think a lot of the things like the fishing rights and everything have to still be done in accord with Europe because we can't we can't exist without acknowledging that it's there and it's a major trading partner, and we are literally a small island at sea, and the closest thing to us is um Europe. So to not be sort of integrated with the European Union but not a member um, is perfectly natural, I think, in the case that we've done a Brexit. Yeah. Um, so I suppose that's kind of where I'm at, that it's a kind of mix of both sort of starting a new chapter for many people who were absolutely directly affected, uh, and for those of us who kind of watch it, we're, uh, yeah. we kind of adapt, I suppose. Um, I, I think so. I, I think it's quite interesting when you, you uh, raise Norway as, a, as an example, because I, again, I'm going to mention it, I'm working in the station, so I got listening to the experts um, in, doing interviews every day. So one of the experts did mention about the kind of the... <laughs> Norway style uh, cooperation be between the country and, and the European Union as a whole, how they've managed fishing and how they kind of went going on not too bad at the moment. I think Britain needs to find its way. Um, 
well, an, another important part of in, in terms of the UK and and the rest of the world is about the relationship between UK and the US. Before going to that, just quickly mention about what happened recently in terms of what happens in the Washington DC, and the Twitter permanently suspended Donald Trump's personal Twitter account. Just briefly about that, what do you think about the the idea that Twitter banned his account because Twitter thinks he's about to spread the violence I- ideas or kind of asking people to do things they shouldn't do. What would you think about that? I think it's right that they've done it, but it is very sort of much a little too late kind of thing. Like it was only in May last year that he was tweeting when the looting starts. When the looting starts, the shooting starts. Um, and he's kind of done this call to arms many times before, and Twitter hasn't stepped in. And it's not just him, but the people who he emulates as such who do this on Twitter. And think about the Pride Boys and how they approach social media and troll people. And there are horrible calls to arms on Twitter that are done daily. And I think this is a very public figurehead example of Twitter taking action, which is great because it has to happen following on from what sort of the sort of terrorism that happened on Capitol Hill the other day. But at the same time, mm. this is um this is like one sort of drop in the ocean of so many people who use Twitter to rally people for violent means. Um, you think about sort of like the nature of sort of like a war cry as such that Trump was doing, and he's not alone in that. He's unfortunately one of the most powerful people in the world, which means that he can do that, and it has the impact that we saw this week. Um, when it shows a wider issue of how people can just do this violent call to arms on Twitter, and Twitter before now has not done much to stop it. One of my friends are making a kind of joke,、uh, saying the only social media that Donald Trump can use at the moment is TikTok, but sadly he banned it. <laughs> so that's kind of <laughs> kind of the joke, which is, I think it's really, I I, I would say、um, weird for me to see the news,、um, knowing that Twitter kind of suspended Donald Trump's Twitter account. Like forever, because it doesn't happen very often in terms of the Western society. If you know what I mean, isn't it? It doesn't happen、no. very often. But I mean, in some ways, it's kind of it almost feels like a return to normal and an end of an era, really.、Yeah. Because I suppose when Trump was sort of running for office and then took office as、um, president of the United States, I mean, I remember talking about it with someone. They said the first thing a journalist does now. If they're reporting on America, is they look on Twitter rather than the news or look at their sources, because that's where Donald Trump will put his policies out. And there are the Wolf's book, Fire and Fury, talks about how, kind of in the way that、um, autocrats in Europe before wrote sort of policies and sort of like ideas on a slip of paper, and then their sort of the people in their office then had to build policies around that,、um, that were actually put into play. Donald Trump was sort of writing sort of like policy ideas on Twitter, and then his Oval Office, apparently, according to this book account of what went on in the office in the first year, were then having to scramble to turn his tweet into a policy、yeah. uh, they hadn't heard about. And it's a really weird way and a chaotic way, and we've seen how sort of like the chaos has got worse in the last month or so,、um, which he's kind of thrived off, but this kind of cut off. At the end, kind of shows that we are hopefully touch wood. As long as he does actually leave on the twentieth,、um, we are actually kind of returning back to sort of the state of order that there was before. Slowly, we'll go back to not checking Twitter first, but the news and our actual sources.、Um, and I don't know. In some ways, it gives me hope that like that will be a return to normality. But at the same time, it could not, and that could be the new normal that we just sort of constantly now rely on a president's social media. 
but I love the jo I love the joke about how the only thing he can use now is TikTok. I think that's a kind of brilliant load of karma. Donald <laughs> <laughs> Trump. <laughs> Uh, but I um I couldn't agree more with the uh, with that joke and um you know being in Chinese I kind of like I I am not personally a fan of TikTok to be honest because I feel like it's a bit silly people share about silly part of their life which is fine and it's fun but it's just I'm not really into that sort of thing but with all the news coming out I feel like well you got that day do you right so uh, let's wrap up with uh, this episode with one final topic as I mentioned about the future what you think about the future between the UK and the US since UK is now leaving the EU like officially permanently maybe I don't know um, and the US is now changing the precedent very soon what's your prediction what's your feeling about that do you think it means there will be even better relationship between two countries or it could be challenged because of the kind of lots of influences in the world in terms of US in terms of the UK of what happened in the past I think it's really hard, um, and it. I, I suppose we've always said it's a special relationship, and yeah. we've always called into question how okay it is to refer to the U.S.-U.K. relationship as a special relationship. I mean, we're not able to, as a member of NATO, the Northern Atlantic sort of like um, organization, um, we're not able to. I mean, it. I whether you agree or not with uh, nuclear deterrence, we're not able to touch anything on our nuclear weapons or whatever unless the US does first and if they do the kind of domino effect we're expected to do the same there's a very serious undertone to that relationship which is not just kind of two English speaking countries across the sea um, but more so that like we are so reliant and interwoven with them that that relationship is no longer healthy and I hope that in the future as we go forward, we are people are sort of holding pe powers more accountable, and one of the promises with Biden coming in that sort of figures such as Alexandria Ocasio Cortez um, and Ilan Oman have said is that they will be holding Biden to account on all the promises that he made in his president's presidential election because everyone is aware that he's kind of put forward this whole democratic sort of like better world post-Trump era. Um, but whether he does that, it's dependent on whether he's held to account, and that will have a lot of factors on how the US then talks to the UK. But on top of that, we're also having to look elsewhere as a country in the UK. We've already talked about how the immigration bill and the immigration system is based off an Australian system, and we're looking to Australia, and we're looking to China a lot of the time, um, and we're looking to Japan and Canada and all these other countries outside the EU. Yeah. Um, and in some ways, that's a very sort of healthy thing to do. Arguably, we should have been sort of putting this emphasis on more, and I think we probably were quietly, but never this publicly. Um, and who knows? Maybe the kind of like more the, the more open aspect of this will mean that we are a more open country than just reliant on our special relationship. Um, yeah. But who knows? But who knows? I, I I don't really know, and it's um it kind of depends what happens with Boris Johnson, <laughs> and what happens with our government next, because yeah. <laughs> who ends up in our government um will dictate where we go with that. Uh, well, it's that it's totally fair for you to say that you don't really know, because nobody knows about what happens. Like nobody can say what happens today or yesterday or or this week, like four years ago before Donald Trump came into force, um. I think that's really, really fair judgment to put it in that way. I know that I said that was the last question, but I'm just going to put one more, <laughs> squeezing, because since you mentioned a lot of countries and a lot of kind of cooperation between the UK and those countries, um, 
uh, I did hear people saying, you know, UK is still very much a a big part, a, a major part of the um, politics and 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 trade and economy and military even in the international stage. But some people are saying, you know, it's it's different. The time is different now. The US is getting so weaker. China is getting stronger, which is they don't think is a good thing. But it's fine. I guess we need to have different perspectives on this and、Absolutely. properly analyze that. Well, power ebb and flows in sort of on the world stage. Like, who are we to kind of say that UK is still a massive power? We are. The reason we were a massive power in the past is because of the atrocities of colonialism,、um, and what the UK, well, Great Britain did in that sense.、Um, but different world powers come and go. I mean, I think, think Romans, centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries ago. Were in power, and that was Italy. And then you sort of had the Holy Roman Empire. You've had the Great Chinese Dynasty. You've had Russia.、Um, it's kind of it's one of those situations where we come and go. And I would say the UK has never been at the sort of like the seat of central power、yeah. for the last sort of like for at least my lifetime. But that's not a bad thing. We're still incredible. We're still incredibly strong, and it's always had a very central place in Europe.、Um, But we've always, always had a sort of a foot out, sort of once a foot out the door before Brexit was even on the cards. Partially, I suppose, just because we're an island, we're separate, <laughs>、um, and that physical separation does have a big impact.、Um, and we're a very sort of like fractured small country in ourselves that we have. We are already a sort of like union of it in of itself before you think about Europe. Sort of like the ebb and flow of power is very much kind of we. It would be a mistake, I think, to think that we are. The seat of power in the world,、yeah. um, but I always, I, I, I don't know. I've always felt like diplomatically, the openness and a regard for like the world as a whole is a lot healthier than the isolationist. Just focus on Europe. We'll see. I guess in the next few years, we're going to see more changes in in terms of how the powers are shifting、um, internationally. I can see some changes since I was young, <laughs> until、mm-hmm. now. I can see some changes, and I can see. I guess probably more changes coming up soon.、Um, we'll leave that to another episode. But I think it's it's really lovely having a chat with you. This is one of the best episodes we had in the whole season. I would say, Caitlin, it's really great to have you on the show. I love being on your show, and I'm so grateful that you asked me back. Thank you for indulging my sense of <laughs> love of my own voice and narcissism. <laughs> no, it's lovely to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Caitlin. Thank you so much. That's my friend, Caitlin Power,、um, a student journalist and、uh, currently working on.、Uh, Researching role at the moment with an organization.、Uh, she's fabulous, isn't she? We have we just mentioned this is one of the best episodes in season three.、Um, it's longer; it's thirty minutes long, and we went on talking about quite a few things,、uh, ranging from economy, from people's daily lives to politics, and and, and we touch a little bit about you know international、um, politics at the moment. I think it's really important for the voices from people like Caitlin that they know what's going on. They have clear idea about. The changes of the the world, changes within the countries, in the EU, within the UK,、um, to go out, to go around, to be heard by more people. So I think that's one of the reasons why I love to do the podcast, Robin and Friends, is that people may say young generation snowflakes, they don't know anything about it, but actually they do. Many of them have better understandings of the world than some other experts. On some radio stations, I would say.、Um, but what do you think? If you want to get in touch and share, what do you think about the whole Brexit thing and the relationship between the UK and the EU, UK and the US, and the UK on the round of rest of the world?、Um, do get in touch with the show. More than happy to hear from you. Find us on social media at Debsefan on Net on Twitter and at Debsefan on Weibo.、Uh, looking forward to hearing from you. Until next time, bye bye.
Thanks for listening. To find out more, check out our website, diversefm.weebly.com or email diverse.fm at foxmail.com. Until next time. This is Diverse FM.